you, Jelly, for uh, setting us up this morning too. Um, you know, Jelly approached me um, before the service, and you know, sh- should I give a heads up, people, that today's passage might be particularly offensive? I said, no. Well, I mean, you can say something, but don't, because it's the word of God, and it's supposed to nourish us um, um, joyfully. So. Uh, <coughs> With, with that in mind, that it is the word of God that he wants to strengthen us by his grace, uh, let's, let's turn to um, 1 Timothy and, and chapter 2. Now, we are, all, we are all influenced by things around us. I think we, we totally understand that, don't we? Take, for instance, the fashion industry and how it constantly impacts the way we, we view ourselves. We ask, what should I wear? Uh, we ask, uh, will I look good in it? Um, and, and let me tell you how glad I am that you have considered to put something on today before coming in. Great, this, this is great, thank you for doing that. But questions of clothing and accessories is an increasingly dominant topic amongst young people. Well, just this week I saw a guy walking a dog in an oversized trench coat. And I said, of course to myself, you, you just didn't walk up to your grandpa's wardrobe and pick it up. Someone must have persuaded you that this is one of the, the trendiest things that you can buy today, right? What should I wear? Will I look good in it? There's another question particularly relevant today, to today, I think. When I put on something, will I still going to look like a man or a woman? Because what once was so obvious, I think, is, is not so anymore. The surrounding culture will have its impact on us individually. But what happens if other cultural trends go unchecked, specifically in the church? Just a quick look at the liberal branch of whichever denomination and, and, and we'll, we'll, soon, we'll soon encounter the blessing of the same-sex couples, same-sex marriage. We'll encounter women's ordination and uh, being ordained as overseers and bishops and so on. And I think the general rule is when the teaching goes off the rails, so does the lifestyle. I think that is what we can perceive also in today's passage. And that brings us to um, already introduced so-called highly controversial passage of 1 Timothy chapter 2. The Apostle Paul has been called many different names because of his perceived teaching um, about on, on women. And in fact, Paul still is blamed because of it today. And so are those who take Paul seriously. So before we dive in what the text in its context is actually saying, let me make a quick comment about the matter of looking at a controversial teaching. Because one might ask, what does it benefit anyone to consider difficult and controversial teaching on a Sunday morning? What does it benefit? Obviously, it only causes strifes and splits. Hence the saying, doctrine divides. It's a very popular saying, doctrine divides. And I think John Piper, in his book, The Pleasures of God, 
it's a wonderful book if you get, can get hold of it, has put it rather well. Listen in. Can controversial teaching nurture Christ-likeness? Before you answer this question, ask another question. Are there any significant biblical teachings that have not been controversial? I cannot think of even one, let alone the number we all need for the daily nurture of faith. As much as we would like it, we do not have the luxury of living in a world where the most nourishing truth are unopposed. If we think we can suspend judgment on all that is controversial and feed our souls only on what is left, we are living in a dream world. There is nothing left. So John Piper on the subject. Now keeping in mind, keeping Piper in mind, let us dare to trust Paul this morning and his judgment. Obviously he and the Holy Spirit thought that this doctrine is for the benefit uh, and spiritual health of the gospel people. So let us dive right in, um, shall we? What is the passage actually about? Now here's my main point. If you, if you get lost somewhere in the middle or whatever, here is the main thing. The church should display God's creation order that is now restored in Christ. The Grace Church is the church that displays God's creation order that is now restored in Christ. And, and therefore, uh, the Grace Church re resists any cultural trends that go against God's good purposes. Instead, she should wholeheartedly embrace God's good designs for women and for men in the church. And that is what the, the church in Ephesus hadn't done. Do you remember, do you remember from past weeks, the false teachers in the church in Ephesus? They, on the one hand, they wanted to do some good. Okay? They were trying to guard against the influence of the surrounding culture. They did it by creating a legal wall around the church, you know, creating a purity culture, so-called. But on the other hand, they didn't succeed, really. The culture of Ephesus found its way into the church anyway, particularly in terms of the roles a man and a woman have in the church. The church had begun mirroring the surrounding culture, thus destroying God's creation order, and the church became ineffective in her task. Do you remember? To pray for the salvation of all people, the church was throwing out of the window her reputation of being unique people, the assembly of the living God. And so Timothy is to, first of all, encourage godly behavior amongst men and women in the church in light of that. And that is from verses 8 to 10. Godly behavior amongst women and men in the church. Once at verse 8, I desire then, or therefore, that in every place the men, should, 
the man should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, although Paul devotes only one verse to men, I think we can say that, that the men are responsible for the mess that the church is in. Why? Because instead of being godly spiritual leaders at home and in the church, they got entangled in worldly arguments, lifting, um, uh, lifting their hands, not in holy prayer, but lifting their hands to quarrel and to fight about secondary matters, really. Paul says, I desire therefore, uh, in, in verses uh, 1 to 7, that man should, man should be in, in charge, man should pray. So what Paul is saying here, in the light of verses 1 to 7, sorry, Paul was urging the whole church to be praying for all people, and men should have taken the leadership responsibility in doing that. And this should have happened in every place. Every house church where Christians meet, Paul says, men should lead the congregation in prayers. Again, but instead of lifting holy hands in prayer, the men in the church were presumably lifting hands in angry fights. It is not entirely clear what the quarrelling was about. It, it could be about the teaching of the universal offer of the gospel that was so offensive, you know, because of the, the Jewish influence. Or maybe the false teachers were simply uh, in, implying that, you know, that the Gentiles had really no, no part in it. And so the fight began in the church. We don't know really. Anyway, men were not doing what they were supposed to be doing, leading the church in praying for all people. I mean, it is it's a huge challenge for us men, isn't it? If you're a husband, it is a huge challenge to take the initiative in spiritually leading your wife, in spiritually leading your family, if you have children. It's a huge challenge. Now, I'm constantly convicted that I should be doing a better job in leading my, my family in prayers. The other week I was debating again with my twin daughters about the shape of their, their, their room was in. Okay? It's regular. It's a regular conversation. And they responded as they usually do. But mom said, and, and, dot, 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 and I interrupted immediately, I, I was asking, now, who's in charge here? And without blinking an eye, they said, Mom is. <laughs> well, there you go, my Sunday morning confession about, about taking the lead at home. But men, how much more easier, how much more easier it is for us to pick the next controversial, um, you know, uh, subject on social media and spend hours punching our opponents in their digital face by proving our position on, on this and that. It's much easier for us, you know? We're quite ready. Um, but that's not what we're supposed to do. When I see Christian men on social media pouring over many hours doing just that, I always think to myself, well, where do, where do you get time? Should you not rather be doing something else? 
Now, Grace, man, what should we learn from Paul here? What should we learn about what a, what a, a real Christian man is like? What does a Christian alpha male look like, if you like? Is it someone with the six-pack from the City Fitness, or even worse, the six-pack from the Remy Beer Shell Selection? Or is it someone who can knock out the opponent with an uh, you know, uh, apologetical argument? Is that a real Christian man, alpha man? And Paul says, none of those. What we should be most concerned about is how to model godly behavior. As we meet in our home groups on Wednesdays and other days, therefore men take initiative in leading the prayers. And that is what Christian men should be known for, Paul says. That is what they should be adorned in. Well, because of the likewise of verse 9, right? Women, verses 9 to 10. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or perils or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now remember, Paul, Paul desires both men and women to be adorned in godly behavior. And for both of them, it means visible good works. Men should be known for leading, uh, for, for leading the prayers, and women should be known for managing their households well and for being hospitable in a wider context. Well, the problem in the church in Ephesus was this, that some women were more known not by their good works, but by their luxury looks. And here what Paul isn't saying here in, in, this, in these verses, he isn't saying that Christian women in Ephesus have to make every effort to look bad. That's not the case. And verse 9, even respectable apparel adorned in modesty and self-control can look very good. Isn't that the definition of good looks? I think that is. Well, I think, to be honest, as I was pondering on that truth, I think we all in grace here look good. I think we simply look good. But it is worth acknowledging how controversial even scandalous is the fact that man, or let alone pastor, should even comment on the subject of women's dress. And to be fair, I agree to that uh, to some extent. I don't think we men should be making any comments about women's looks, really. It's, there's no place for that. But that is not to say that a church leader should never have anything to say about the looks of a professing Christian woman. I think that's what Paul is particularly talking about here. Again, friends, I think grace women are not in danger here, really. Whatever is the equivalent of gold and perils or costly attire in the 21st century, I don't think our church could be charged with that, really. 
at least I haven't been distracted by any, you know, I, I can't even pronounce this, Louis, Louis Vuitton or Gucci bags, is that, I mean, close to that? Or costumes here at Grace, or, or whatever the braided hair equivalent is, I, I haven't been distracted by that, really. There was, however, one instance that, that is very memorable in my mind. So I was visiting this, many years ago, this, this country church in Latvia, and it's by all means a lovely church with, with great people. And after the service, they were coming up to me to greet me, to, to encourage me, to thank me for the sermon. And, and it, it was all good. And that is why I remember particularly well these two women. As I was turning around, here they were looking as coming straight away from the Brazilian carnival in Rio. Do you know the, the, these, these instances? I was literally blinded by the spectrum of the colors in their hair, uh, on, on their face. And, and I was mute, I think, for three seconds, just smiling. And to be fair, just hear me correctly, there was nothing particularly inappropriate, nothing particularly in, immodest about it. But I was just thinking to myself, again, of course, to myself, why on earth would a wonderful Christian lady do something like that? Why? Now, our culture answers it for us. Our looks tend to be display and show off of our perceived status, of our perceived wealth. I suppose that is how these women communicated in the church. Who is in charge? I think that was something that was going on because one of them was the wife of the church manager. <coughs> are in charge. Now Paul desires that Christian men and women would not mirror the culture in around them. He desires rather that men should adorn themselves in leading the church in prayers and Christian women to mirror their, their heavenly status as redeemed daughters of Jesus, adorned in modesty, self-control and good works. That is what Paul really desires. And well, you might you might think of that. Uh, um, you might think now that this is going rather well. Nothing particularly controversial here. Uh, we, we we had an easy start. Um, but hold my drink, please. Says verses eleven to fourteen. Um, Paul Paul desires. Something, something more. Paul desires that the Grace Church embraces the creation differences between men and women. That is from verses 11 onwards. So let's read briefly. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. <coughs> now if you feel you have been, you've had a boring week where nothing much has happened, not a lot of movement, then posting these two verses in Facebook will change it instantly. I can promise you that. That is not a serious suggestion, okay? In light of what we've been looking so far, that's not a serious suggestion. <coughs> But it just highlights how controversial these words are, particularly 
to our culture, to the Western culture that we are living in, that is shaped by the feminist movement of early, early 20th century particularly, that is what a modern secular woman hears when she sees verses 11 and 12. And you can afterwards come to me and confirm it, or you know, push back. That's what the, the, the secular modern woman hears. Woman must serve men. And that's the banner kind of. With, with, with the red, of course, with the red, this, this you know, uh, cross. Well, just this week, my ex-neighbor, a young, bright, and intelligent uh, woman, shared on her Facebook wall a, a classic picture uh, <laughs> painting that depicts Herodias, you know, the Herod's wife in the Gospels, holding in her hands this golden platter with John the Baptist's head on it. It's a wonderful picture. Well, I mean, gruesome, but wonderful, you know, beautiful picture. And the text under it said, when someone tells me woman must serve man. It's just what the 21st century secular woman thinks when she reads something like that in the Bible. And I think it, 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 it's a shame, really, it's a grave misunderstanding and misrepresentation of Christian uh, teaching. In, Eph in Ephesians, Paul explicitly says, notice, a husband, that is a husband that is to sacrificially love and serve his wife as Christ loved and served his church by sacrificing himself on the cross. That's what men should be doing, serving. Okay? So that's a misrepresentation of, of, of Paul's teaching, really. Now, in order to make sense of, of Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy, we have to consider that in context. It's precisely because of the failure of some men to take up their leadership responsibilities at home and the church that, that provoked some of these women to just step up, take initiative, push maybe one or two aside. Of course, there might be other cultural pressures for women in Ephesus in the first century, okay? Because they lived in this, this pagan culture of a female goddess Artemis. It's a basically fertility culture. There might be a lot of other things going on. But we don't know a lot about it, really. Either way, from Paul here, either way, Paul says two things on either side of the coin. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And that is perceived as even more controversial. I was greatly held by this American pastor, Ken Hughes. Uh, in his commentary on 1 Timothy, he helpfully points out what Paul doesn't mean. Here's a quote. These instructions do not prohibit a woman teaching or having authority in the marketplace or the academy or the public square. They are about order in the church. Neither do these directives allow any man within the church by virtue of his gender to exercise authority over women. 
in the church. Again, that's second thing that Paul is not saying. Such more generally explicit authority only exists within the sacred covenant of marriage and family, and then is only to be exercised with a self-giving spirit of Christ. So Ken Hughes on commenting on, on these verses. But neither Paul means that the women are remain completely quiet and are not allowed to teach in the church per se. Just think for a moment. It, it's amazing to witness the women's Bible study um, ministry going on here uh, at Grace Space on Monday mornings. That's amazing. It is great to hear of the initiatives that women are taking with each other on the weekly basis to meet up, to encourage one another in the walk with Jesus. A woman teaching. A lot of teaching going on here, don't you think? And by all means, the scriptures expect a woman to be teaching her children, and not only hers, but the children in the church. Hence our Sunday school. So pastoral epistles are full of examples of women teaching. Also, in Acts 18, the Jewish Christian couple Priscilla and Aquila pulled aside Apollos after his sermon to instruct both of them, to instruct him more, more, uh, more clearly in the way, in the gospel. A lot of teaching for women. In that case, what does Paul's prohibition for women to teach in Wolf. What is he actually talking about specifically? Now, I believe it is concerning a public display of authoritative teaching, a sustained monologue in which the law, so to speak, is laid down for men. Okay? Public display of authoritative teaching where it's a sustained monologue unchallenged, where the law is laid down for men. I think that is what Paul is saying here. And the most obvious application, I think, is, is actually the preaching uh, to the mixed congregation on the Sunday morning. That's why we don't have women doing this, because of what Paul says here. Or leading, leading a church that also implies authoritative teaching. Rather, Paul says, in the context of a mixed congregation, a woman should be content with learning. Only particularly in this specific context and instance. Now, I do realize, though, that it doesn't get me off the hook, really. Because someone might be wondering, even here this morning, what are your reasons for saying something like that? Now, are you considering women to be somehow inferior? Are you considering women to be somehow sub-intellectual? To be able to teach. Again, it would be a grave misunderstanding and misrepresentation of Paul and of me. If perhaps education was an issue in the first century, it certainly isn't an issue for women in the 21st century. It has nothing to do with women's intellectual or cognitive abilities. Now, if, if, if you men want to try this argument, you'll be 
guilty yourselves with a blue eye or whatever you Who isn't talking about that? In fact, the opposite is often true in my experience. I know a lot of very capable women, Bible teachers, able to clearly and faithfully articulate you know, what the scripture says, and often even more clearly than men can. Then nor does it has anything to do with equality. Paul is not talking about equality here. Paul actually assumes the equality of men and women in this passage. That is established in the first chapters of Genesis. Man and woman are both created in the image of God, equal, <coughs> dot. So why then is woman, why, why then a woman cannot teach a man if they are equal? Why? Well, because in their equality, they have different roles. That's Paul's answer. And I think that is what verses 13 and 14 are actually about. Just go on to verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So what Paul does here, in his argument, he goes back to Genesis. He goes back to a pre-fall God's creation order to substantiate what he's saying to these women in the first century Ephesus, Christian women, okay? There are two things here. Firstly, the chronological order is absolutely of no importance. When Paul says a man was created first, it's not the chronological order because animals, monkeys were created before men, okay? So the headship, the responsibility of instruction is what matters here. Paul talks about headship. Adam was in charge. Adam was supposed to be in charge. So what happened in Genesis 3, if you, if you know the story, was that this order was turned upside down, okay? The serpent usurped, is that the word, usurped? Yeah, usurped, God's place. The serpent tricked the woman into eating the fruit that the God had forbidden, and woman in turn didn't trick. The woman persuaded the man, okay? She persuaded by rational argument the man. She laid down the law. The woman was teaching with authority here against God's creation order. Adam was to be blamed, of course, because he didn't fulfill his duty. He wasn't actually in charge, okay? So what is, what, what is there for women then? So, friends, the last controversial truth, <coughs> verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, without going into terrible detail, Paul is not implying that women are somehow saved differently. Again, don't try that line. Now, meaning through the childbearing, through bearing children, that's not what Paul is saying. That would go against literally everything that Paul has been saying about justification and salvation in the rest of the New Testament. Okay? 
nor is he saying that the only purpose for every woman is childbearing. That's also what Paul is not saying here. What I think Paul does here, he lays out what the path of salvation for men and women is. Just bear with me very briefly on this path of salvation. While in God's creation order, men and women are equal, their roles or in gaps, paths of salvation are different. I think we can say that that the Christian man's path of salvation, or if we want to use Peter's words, uh, how they work out their salvation in their daily lives and responsibilities, is taking up the leadership responsibility, leading the families in prayers, churches in prayers, thus the path of salvation for men, okay? And, And so... For women, for women, path of salvation is managing their households in godly and dignified way. It's not exhaustive. It basically means according to the responsibilities and role in the whole of life, fulfilling you know, that, 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 that calling a path of salvation. And, and that's not the only instance what Paul goes down that line in 1 Timothy. We will see later in chapter 4.16 that for pastors, elders, path of salvation is what? Is keeping close watch on himself and on the teaching. And then again Paul uses this weird phrase that saves himself and saves others. What? Is the pastor saving himself because he's teaching? No, it's his path, it's his duty, it's his responsibility, it's his role. He works out his salvation uh, in this way. Okay? Right, friends, we are running slowly out of time. Let me summarize. Let me summarize what we've done this morning because it might, might feel a little intense. Paul wants the church to pray for the salvation of all people because of God's will, because of God's work. But the church will only succeed in it if she keeps in step with God's will. Men taking up the responsibility of being spiritual leaders at home and in the church. Women adorning themselves in good works of all sorts which will include a lot of teaching responsibilities, but not the ones of sustained monologue of authoritative teaching of a mixed congregation. Not because women would be inferior, sub-intellectual or gullible, no. But because in God's good creation order, that responsibility simply lies with men. That's how God has arranged things. Now, friends, think in the closing. Which church would you be rather part of or belong to? Which? The church where everyone embraces responsibly and respectfully their God-given roles, joyfully serving one another, and thus, you know, being on mission of, of 
of making the gospel known to all people and displaying the gospel in how they live. If people are the part of this congregation or the church where everyone promotes themselves, where men are lazy and quarrelsome and angry with each other about secondary matters and where, where women use that instance to shift the power balance, you know, uh, in all sorts of ways, uh, presenting themselves, you know, from, from, from Carnot, Rio, whatever. <laughs> Which church would you be rather part of? I gather the, the first one, the, the Grace Church, which observes good, uh, God good creation order and joyfully fulfills all the responsibilities, respectfully, and in the servant-hearted way. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do confess to you that as people who live in this in this fallen world, we are very much influenced by various ideas and trends and winds that blow over our heads um, in, in our secular culture. And so Father, we thank you for the, the spiritual milk of your word that really brings us back and restores us in, in um, our clear thinking on how you view church, on, on what should be happening and going on in the church. So Father, as we've heard the word this morning, please, please grant strength and, and, and responsibility to us, to us men to not be uh, slackers, to not be lazy, to not be weak in that sense of taking up responsibility, either in the church or family, how you've given us. Please grant us to be a servant-hearted leaders who, who joyfully fulfill our tasks. Father, please grant, grant women here a grace, always such um, humble spirit and soft hearts of fulfilling their God-given role of many, many teaching responsibilities and given, given the content spirit of refraining uh, restraining rather from from uh, turning out uh, upside down the power balance causing strives in the church by by stepping up and wanting to lead church or preaching of sermons father please just help us guard against these these worldly trends so that we could glorify you and so that we would be be effective if, in our evangelism and mission towards the, the lost world and displaying you and your good creation order. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.